Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. I'm here with Abby Covert, the author of How to Make Sense of Any Mess. How are you doing today, Abby? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. Absolutely. So we're talking about information architecture today, and uh, we always start off with a definition. So can you tell the audience what is information architecture exactly? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a pretty broad definition, but uh, information architecture is the way that we choose to arrange something to make it understandable as a whole. So that can be applied to everything from print material to a digital project, even maybe the way that you arrange your closet could potentially have information architecture. Interesting. Have you ever done information architecture on somebody's closet before? <laughs> uh, only my own. <laughs> I, would, I bet I'd be good at organizing other people's closets just as much, though. Is your closet really organized then? Uh, it is pretty organized, yeah. Okay. I, I continually am perfecting my system of organizing it. Nice. I kind of want to be a fly on the wall in your house and see how you do things. <laughs> Well, my husband and I live in 420 square feet in New York City, so uh, to be organized is sort of a, a necessity more than oh, uh, just yeah. a hobby. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That's not very much space to work with at all. <laughs> no. So how is information architecture used specifically in building software, um, you know, both for internal teams and you know, external users? So information architecture is really taking the moment to think about both the language and the structure that would be best used to get towards your intent. So when you're working on a piece of software or you're working on maybe a big web project, it's that moment when people aren't necessarily designing the solution yet, but they're trying to figure out how are we going to divide this thing up to make sense to the users that we intend to have. So that can be everything from deciding what to call different types of functionality to how to arrange things within menus or on uh, different navigation modules or even in the page-to-page hierarchy or state-to-state hierarchy, depending on, on what it is that you're building. Okay, so it's pretty widespread throughout what it is that you're doing when building software. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before information architecture was called that in the technical world, there's a, a funny kind of, I guess, urban myth about it that it used to be referred to as the pain with no name. So it's sort of that idea that you can make something look really good and even meet all of your business stakeholders' requirements, but that users still might not actually understand it. And I think that we've all been in that situation, both as um, you know, technical professionals working on a project as much as we have maybe users of things that other people make, where the thing looks really nice, but it just doesn't seem to make sense to us for whatever our purpose is. So information architecture is actually a term that was borrowed by technology uh, from the graphic design world. Um, and that's sort of where it, it got its founding from those folks who were looking at the, the intersection between physical architecture and hierarchies for the purpose of communicating information through graphic design. Okay, so this actually started in the design world. I didn't realize that that was the case. Yeah, yeah, it's something that's been talked about in the graphic design world since the early 70s, actually. Oh, wow. By that name, too. Yeah, Richard Saul Werman, who's the creator of the conference, he's actually kind of the, the father of information architecture. He was the first person to say the word information architect. But then there's also a lot of documentation citing that 
early technology companies were also exploring that term as well, far before it was kind of usurped for organization of websites and things like that. Oh, like uh, any examples of what companies we might know of? I believe that it was uh, it was used broadly at the beginning of uh, companies like HP. Oh, yeah. Uh, not a big surprise, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so what's interesting about what you're saying is that it sounds almost synonymous with a lot of the things that we do in customer development. Um, is that accurate? I mean, I think that information architecture is a core life skill. I, I don't think that many of us get away with not practicing it. It's whether or not we call it that. So yeah, if you're trying to understand your customers and would best serve them, you're absolutely doing some level of information architecture work. Okay, so it sounds similar to what I hear lately about uh, economics, actually. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but I just want to kind of understand the philosophy behind what it is that you're doing, where, you know, you have a debate happening amongst economists where they're saying economics is a methodology more than it is necessarily a study of a particular slice of behavior like financial things. And so you've had books like Freakonomics that come out that talk about using economics, using the methodologies that economists have come up with and studying all sorts of behavior. So is that similar to what you're saying here is that information architecture as a practice, as a way of thinking is pervasive and can be used in multiple contexts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that I've found to be my goal, maybe even in life, I don't know, at least for the, the time being, is to make more people understand that information architecture is not something to only be considered in terms of technology and the organization of content on things like websites or software applications, that it's actually much more applicable and kind of not separatable from things like perception. I mean, information as a material is not something that exists without people interpreting it. So what one person believes to be true after experiencing something can be completely different than what somebody else can experience and believe to be true as a result of the same content and the same structure. And I think that the key to practicing information architecture responsibly is to understand that you can't make information. It's something that you can make content and structures uh, with the intent of creating a certain type of information in the minds of your users, but you can't control it, which you know I find to be more of an opportunity than a challenge, but I know that it's very <laughs> challenging for people when they're just starting to learn that. How do we decide then what sorts of language or what hierarchy of things will actually end up? And I mean, ideally, I think our goal is to have uh, what we perceive to be perceived by other people. That's kind of the whole point of this communication thing that humans have come up with. So how do we make sure that everybody's on the same page? You know, our users are on the same page with our stakeholders in the business and we all understand what the other is trying to say. I think there's two parts of it. The first is letting go of believing that there is one right way. I think that a lot of people go into projects believing that they already know the way that something should be, or they already know the language that should be used to describe the thing. And getting people to let go of that attachment to whatever their first kind of initial impression is, and also to realize that that's a result of their particular mental model, right? So getting to the next place involves really doing the research with both your stakeholders and your users to understand what are the differences of language and mental model between users and stakeholders and what they believe to be true. And getting people to have those conversations is really difficult. Um, and depending on what level you sit in an organization or in a client service kind of relationship, it can be even more difficult. So I think that that's the only way that we can decide what language to use is to actually actively decide as opposed to inheriting things, which I see a lot of inheritance. 
going on, you know, when you just walk into a project and because it's a content management system of a certain name, you get a certain language that comes along with it. And so questioning that language, I think, is actually really key to the process. You know, I think it's interesting that you let off your answer by saying that we need to really realize that maybe having one right uh, way of describing things or one right way of perceiving things is not exactly the goal here. I struggle with this a lot myself because, you know, I came up in the like hard sciences where facts are facts and everybody needs to understand the facts. And yet uh, one of the most impressionable things, I don't know if you've ever been to the National Gallery of Art at all. Um, have you? No, I don't think so. So in D.C., free, which um, after moving out of D.C., I don't understand every other city why you charge for art museums. But at the National Gallery, there's this picture by Solowit, and I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, this sort of painting, I guess you could call it, that he did, called Objectivity. And it's just five rows of the uh, word objectivity, both actually coming out of the painting and then recessed back into the painting. So every time you look at objectivity, it's completely different. And of course, completely different depending on where you're standing to the painting too. And that was the first time that I was like, wow, I mean, this is very simple. It's one word. We're all looking at objectivity, and yet it is entirely different for everybody perceiving it. Yeah, that's really interesting that a painting of objectivity would be so subjective. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's, that's actually something that it's taken me a really long time in my career as an IA to understand, is that truth is not necessarily something to be relied upon very often. And facts are often the thing that, that's holding a team back from exploring something that's much more important, which would be agreement. You know, if we can't agree on what the facts are or what the language is, that's going to get us towards our intent, then we can't really move forward. And I think that the worst thing that happens is that people actually get really frustrated and into a lot of kind of miscommunications and communication breakdowns and fights. And I mean, I've seen people quit or get fired <laughs> over language before. And I think that's, <laughs> that's kind of sad, you know, I mean, if we were all to let go of this attachment to objectivity and instead understand that subjectivity is really the material that we're working with, I think that the world could be perhaps a little bit more clear. Absolutely. So to sum up what you were saying, to decide the words, the language that we're going to use when describing what we build, it's really important to just decide, essentially. Yeah. And deciding means admitting all of the different versions of language that are bound to exist. So generally, one of the first things that I do with a company that I'm working with on their information architecture is I get all of the key stakeholders in a room and I have them generate all of the nouns and all of the verbs that they use in their organization, which sounds like a really daunting task. But for the most part, it's something that you can accomplish in a well-structured workshop of a half to a full day with, you know, maybe 10 to 24 people. And that's something that generally what comes out of it is that they understand that when some of them say a word, other people use a different word. And at that point, it's sort of like you have to decide because you've seen the mess. You, you can't kind of unsee it. Once you've seen that there's too many ways to say something, you sort of are, are forced to decide what to do about it. And that doesn't always mean deciding, oh, we're always going to say it this one way. Sometimes it means making rules for when you're going to use each type of label. But deciding that together is the way that I feel like you can kind of get through and, and get to a good place. Right. I mean, I feel, at least from personal experience, you know, starting off doing agile consulting work for clients, building software for them, we struggled to really force 
definitions or, you know, make sure that everybody absolutely understood what was happening. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite examples actually is using the word blocker, which is like a really common thing in agile development. You know, that's something that is standing in the way from somebody on the team of doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing. Right. And yet we had a client that was using the word blockage. And I mean, just that small difference was enough to know that maybe they were just using it because they heard it and it sounded like the right thing to say. And so it was never really clear that they understood exactly what it was. And it kept getting used in contexts that were not like anywhere near appropriate for what it was that we were initially trying to describe. And I mean, that's one word that was like one of the most simple possible words that we could use. And yet we weren't on the same page at all. Yeah, absolutely. I've recently worked with a client who the reason that they called me is because they had 14 words for the word video. Wow. Yeah, I mean, like, sit down and try to even think of 14 words for the word video. And it's really hard to do. But (laughs) when they showed me the list, I was like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. And I mean, it happens. I think the secret to it is that nobody sits down and says, let's think of 14 words for the word video. Let's just make this really complex. Like, nobody ever does that. We have good intentions. But it happens over time. And I mean, this company had only been in existence for, you know, less than five years. And they already (laughs) had all that cruft. I like to call them language barnacles you know they just sort of like stick down there on the bottom of your ship and you can sail around with it for quite a while but after a while it will hold you back right absolutely so let's back up to we're starting a project for example um and i'll we'll get to the barnacles later and how we can get rid of those but we don't have any of them yet the ship is about to sail and (laughs) (laughs) we are trying to figure out how to make sure that we don't misinterpret what everybody means. I mean, what what's the like first, second, third step here? I mean, should we have our product already designed up and now we're looking to describe what the designs say? I mean, wh- where do I go? I think that the number one thing that I recommend to people to do in this case, and it doesn't really matter if you've already designed the product or you've already shipped the product or you're just starting to think about it, and it seems really simple, is to write down the words and the definitions for those words. And I know that that seems like the most mind-numbing, boring task on the entire planet, but the creation of a controlled vocabulary is actually the single thing that I've seen save teams from those barnacles over time. So just having a list that you can reflect on and going through the very tedious process of defining the terms, not just coming up with what you're going to call things, but actually defining them, often leads us to find complexities within those terms. So I might define something and then within that definition have to use three more words that need further defining to really get to the heart of what the complexity is. So going through that exercise of digging down into kind of those rabbit holes of complexity and getting all of it out on paper can be the difference between a project succeeding and being full of miscommunications and people that get angry at the process. Okay, that makes sense. So when we actually sit down and start to discuss this, do I need everybody on the team, everybody in the company in the room at the same time? Not necessarily. I mean, I think that the more people that you can get involved that have stake 
in what you're making, the better that that exercise will go. And obviously, you know, having a lot of people in a room doing an exercise like that does require a tremendous skill in facilitation. So I feel like that's sort of the key it is not just to organize that the exercise will happen, but also to facilitate it appropriately and to get people not only involved, but also energized in doing the thing. So whether that means breaking people up into teams to sort of mine for these words in different parts of the product or breaking them into pairs to come up with as many variations that they can think of for a certain term. I like to play with different ways to facilitate those to feel more like games, you know, like language games that you can play with people in your organization and make it not sitting at a projector with a spreadsheet with a bunch of words and going, okay, guys, how are we going to define it? The other thing is straw dogs really do make that process go a little bit more swiftly. So often I'll use, you know, a workshop setting to generate the list of words. And then I'll take that list of words and take a shot at defining them as I understand them and then have people go through that list with me. And I've had a lot of success doing that extremely remotely, just giving people access to a Google spreadsheet of all of the terms and having them comment back. Like when you say this word, it made me think of this, not what you have here. Or when I think of this, this isn't how I define it. And then kind of getting that all out on the table over a process of time and then getting everyone to sort of adhere to that list as best they can while still having the ability to change it. Uh, I think a lot of the work that we do, it sort of relies on this need to keep things fluid and to be able to change things. So if you ever try to practice information architecture without believing that it will eventually change, uh, you'll be beating your head up against the wall for a really long time. And I think that's how a lot of people get the impression that IA is like this thing that's stuck in a world of waterfall, right? Like you can only do it if you have an upfront discovery process. And then that process ends at a certain point. There's a handoff from information architecture to design. But I don't actually think that that's the way that most projects are accomplished successfully. Instead, we need to be comfortable with the idea that when we get a little further down the process of design, we might describe the thing that we thought we defined clearly. We might have a totally different interpretation of it. And we need to be able to go back and make that change without feeling like we're killing our whole project. Okay, that makes sense. And you talked about trying to do some things to get people energized, which is obviously a lot better than just, uh, at least in the army, we call it death by PowerPoint. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I know. Arrow up, slide. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, there's a, um, I'm at a course right now, which is like all PowerPoint. Um, I mean, nothing but four months of PowerPoint, essentially. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and people do like the previous classes have done videos, joke videos about how their class went. And one of the funniest titled ones was like, 20,000 slides later uh, as a joke on the 28 days later movie. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and you see everybody zombified afterwards. But so you've got obviously some uh, ways to work on getting people energized. But do you notice, you know, like a range of uh, emotions or feelings about people's involvement in it when you sit down to workshop with companies? Oh, absolutely. I mean, people go through all the normal stages of grief when dealing with a mess. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they have to like admit it and then they, they get afraid of it and they deny its existence and all of it. I mean, it's, 
it's just the way that people are. So I feel like whoever is responsible for facilitating it needs to be prepared for those emotions and also needs to be in the position where they're not part of the struggle. I like to talk to my students about being the coffee filter, not the grounds. You don't want to be adding opinions to the mix. You're sorting through the opinions to get something that's, at the end of the day, more drinkable out of the people that you're working with. You're not also adding your own interpretation of what things should be or are. Uh, And that's really hard. You know, the longer that you work on something, the closer you personally get to it. So being able to really separate yourself from that and ask questions as opposed to making assertions is a really important skill to develop over time. And you used the word mess, um, which obviously is part of the title of your book. And I want to clarify, what exactly do we mean by a mess here? It is definitely a broad definition, but I define it as a situation where the interactions between people and information are confusing or full of difficulty. And under that definition, I think that all of us have dealt with mess probably today, if not in this month or definitely in our lifetime. So the reason that I settled on the word mess as opposed to many other synonyms I could have is because mess is something that we inherently understand from a pretty young age. You know, our parents talk about our room being a mess or our handwriting being a mess or, you know, our outfits being a mess. I mean, that's something that we can all kind of identify with. And it's sort of something that, while inherently negative, is also colloquial enough to not be scary. You know, it's just a mess. It's just like, oh, my desk is a mess. I'll get to it. So I like to use that word because I think that it it relieves a little bit of the anxiety that can be incited through other words like chaos. You know, (laughs) (laughs) how to make sense of chaos would have been a very, very different book. Yeah, I I don't think I'd pick that one up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I personally would obviously like for customers to be involved in this sort of process. Do you recommend that step? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And by, by customers, you know, from the service providing side of working at an agency or a consultancy, you'd be talking both about your client as well as their users. But when I work with uh, companies that are working directly with me in service of better user experiences, that means talking to their users. And often the language that our users use is very, very different than the language that we use internally. I think that understanding those as early in the process as possible is really impactful for people. Right. I I agree. I mean, there's, I think one of the most impactful single words that I've come across in a product experience was, so I've got a a product called Cook Academy that I've been working on with my wife for a little while now. And we called initially the recipes, which are technically lessons on the site, um, recipes. And users bundle up a lot of things with that word. That word Mm. implies things that we certainly don't want it to imply about a product that we intend to be a paid product because recipes are free. You know, they may have had really bad experiences with recipes. Recipes may be overwhelming to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's just a lot of baggage that they bring to that word, which I just didn't even think about. You know, me going and designing it originally, all I thought about was that, oh, this thing has steps and the steps have sub steps. And like, you know, I'm, building out the software and I've got, you know, recipes and I've got users recipes and it seemed very straightforward. But then when you put it out there and you actually ask people what they think, they're like, oh, like, okay, it's another free recipe site. Like, no, 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 no. It's not at all. Not at all. It's a lesson. And then we changed the word to lessons. And I think we ended up seeing like a, like three time bump in signups because, oh, I'm learning something now. Like this is completely different than what I'd originally perceived. And nothing was different except for that word. Yep. 
Yeah, no, and I mean, I can go down the train of how you guys came to that word recipe, being that the name of your product has the word cook in it, right? right? So it's sort of like, I will say that uh, humor and puns and cuteness can get you in a lot of trouble when it comes to clarity. So I've, I've had a lot of projects where the copywriter and I have to go like three or four rounds of like, please don't call it that, please don't call it that. And I have definitely, <laughs> when I've lost those battles, the analytics go to prove me right in many, many cases. I actually, I forget who it is. I think it's DHH, David Heinemeyer Hansen, the founder of Rails, had a quote about cleverness, which I really, really loved. I can't remember specifically what it was that he said, but he said, like, you know, in a fight between clarity over cleverness, try and choose clarity every time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he kills you because, like, you come up with the cutest thing and you're like, or the most clever thing or the funniest thing or a play on words. And maybe it's, like, super powerful from, like, a brand essence perspective and your clients love it and it looks great on the interface that you're designing. But then you get it in the hands of users and they're just like, what? What do you mean by recipe? This is a lesson. And you're like, no. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely right. You had mentioned that architecture should be done before design. Why is that the case? Well, I think before is quite strong as a word. I think that architecture needs to be considered before design. Uh, whether or not it can be done before design is, is a little bit like, I don't know if it's ever done. Design's never done. But I ultimately think that the reason is because architecture is less expensive than design. It's something that can be done with post-it notes and maps where design takes pixels and full executions to really make clear. So I think it, as much as we can focus on a zoomed out perspective of words and structures and language choices before we get into the nitty gritty of design, the more time and hassle we will save for our designers or, or ourselves, depending on what the division of labor is. It's uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, which is one of my favorite quotes, is you can use an eraser on the drafting table or a sledgehammer on the construction site. And I think design stands somewhere between that pencil and eraser on the drafting table and the actual concrete being laid on the construction site. So it's sort of this process that you need to understand what you're making before you actually decide how you're going to make it and, and what the thing looks like. So I kind of like that you describe this sort of um, more like a process and less like a product that you walk away with. And, you know, that brings me to a concern that I have ongoing. And I, I like your thoughts on how you think I can accomplish this. But naming, at least in software development, is a constant thing. I mean, every time that I'm coming up with a uh, new function or method um, or class, I mean, I'm picking a name there. So really, how do I make that part of our development process? How can I make sure that, you know, we're fully considering what impact this has when other people come to read it? And, you know, realistically, uh, you are reading code far more than you're writing it. It takes me, you know, maybe 10, 20 characters to write a single function name, but who knows how many times that's going to be used, how many times that's going to be read over the course of the lifetime of that application. Um, so how, how can I make sure that we're continually thinking about this? I think uh, my advice, well, first of all, I would thank you for being a developer that understands that that is a concern to have because I, I see far too many that want the thing to behind the scenes be called one thing and then let the writers figure it out on the front end, which doesn't always work out. Not because you can't have a label inside your software and then a different label for the button or the field or what have you on the interface, but because often it actually gets conflated somewhere between label and model, right? We have things that 
are actually model changes that need to be labeled differently. Right. Uh, and I think that having that conversation without making non-technical people look at code is probably a really important part of what the solution to your problem might be. So if you were to put a bunch of business folks into a room and open up a screen full of code and be like, let's review all these variable names, I don't think that you would hold their attention the way that you maybe want to. Right. But if you were to take all those variable names and put them on post-it notes and have a really simple conversation of like, when I say this, what do you think this means? And test it against your assumptions of what things mean. I think that that would actually get you pretty far into getting better names behind the scenes. You know, that's really interesting that you say that because we do a lot of work at the outset, like whiteboarding and, you know, talking about what it is that the application looks like uh, a really high level. And yet, you know, four or five months into it, it's every developer's first urge is to open up the editor and just start tap, tap, tapping away. And that seems kind of dangerous in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that that controlled vocabulary is something that is really the beginning of the beginning. You know, I mean, if you if you do anything first, I really think that taking a shot at that as a working document that you expect to change throughout the process uh, can be the most valuable thing that you can do, whether it's for people that are writing code or those writing help materials for the product when it's already live, to the people that have to answer the phone to answer questions when people have problems. I mean, all of those different circumstances could really be better served through having a document that says what we mean when we say what we say. Right. I mean... You know, I'm thinking about it from especially an object-oriented programming approach to where, you know, I've got maybe this uh, car post-it note or something. and It would be much easier to visualize it and talk about it and say, if I want to find out how fast the car is going, I go to the car and I ask the car, like, hey, car, what's your speed? And that becomes a little bit easier to think about than, you know, just, okay, I'm in uh, class car, deaf you know, what's the name that I'm going to use for this? I, I don't know. I think just the way that I'm perceiving it right now, thinking about it off on a post-it note, like you said, makes it easier to really grasp the <laughs> objectness of this object. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I think that we deal with primarily in design of most anything, you deal with objects and actions, right? Which translates to nouns and verbs. And those verbs are always related to nouns, right? So like, what can you do to a car? Well, you can build a car, you can drive a car, you can park a car, you know, I mean, like, all those things, getting them out. Um, generally, those post-its for me, I use two colors, one for nouns and one for verbs. So one for objects and one for actions. And making the arrangements of those things with other people really gets us into philosophical and very practical conversations about what things are, what things should be, what the objectness of the thing is that we're trying to get across. And it can really save you a lot of time in the code or the pixels or the content, depending on, on what your medium is. Yeah, absolutely. And you were mentioning earlier that well, first you thanked me, and I thank you for thanking me for thinking ahead about some of these things, but that getting a little too far ahead of yourself and just choosing language that maybe doesn't mesh up between what the stakeholders are thinking about the way a product works, the way the users are thinking about the way a product works, and the way the developers are writing the language in the soft, in the code itself. It is to me at least, a bi-directional concern. You know, it's a two-way street where you have, yes, at the outset, you may end up writing the software differently simply because you're misunderstanding what other people were saying to you to begin with. But then 
it also makes it really difficult once the software is written and we have this one way of describing things inside of the technical team and customers are coming and talking about it in a completely different way or the project owner is talking about it in a completely different way and we have to translate. I mean, just that mental translation every single time hurts. That's a lot of context switching to do. Yeah, it's a lot of cognitive load. And it also, you know, to be honest with you, that's where duplicative efforts start to kind of brew in my experience. So going back to the example of 14 words for video, you know, they didn't just have 14 labels for the same object. They thought they had 14 different objects. Oh, wow. <laughs> so think about the maintenance of that. I mean, you've now built a structure technically where you're supporting 14 different things where you could have the efficiency of one thing, even if 14 labels made sense, which I assure you it never does. Um, but, you know, often there are a few different labels that you might use one in a circumstance on mobile because you're using an icon instead of a, a label, or you might use one with doctors and a different one with patients um, because of grade level or understanding of the context that you're working under. But when you go beneath the surface, understanding that you are in fact talking about one single thing as opposed to several different things can be the difference of, of scope, which you know we all know that scope is both time and money. So it's incredibly important to get those conversations kind of figured out as early in the process as possible before those duplicative things start to kind of eke in. Because the minute that you as a developer build something and then show it to someone and then they ask a question that's using a different term, you have two ways to go. You can either believe that they are calling what you built something different than what you decided to call it or in the same moment you could decide, oh wait, that's not the same thing as what I built, when really it might be. You know, I just had an aha moment as you were talking there about the way that this can end up leading to duplication of effort. And uh, for me, I, it certainly wasn't 14 different uh, ways of describing video, but it was in a social like fitness booking app that we were working on. We had a way of internally describing um, studios, which were fitness studios, which seemed to everybody to be exactly what it was that we were describing. And then over time, that morphed into being venues. And we continued to talk about things as venues uh, with the stakeholders of the application. But internally, we were talking about it as studios. And at some point, venues became a different thing. It started to mean something entirely different. And so we had to build venues in as this completely different object from what studios <laughs> were. And realistically, had we backed up originally and early on dug deeper and said, you know what, like maybe there are broader use cases for this. Maybe fitness studios is a little too limiting. And yeah, we may be building a minimum viable product, but like, should we be building like a minimum viable vocabulary along with it? I, you know, it's... <laughs> seemed kind of uh, um, wrong-headed, and we ended up paying for it in ways that seem, you know, unless you've worked on software and have to go through and, like, change all the instances of uh, studio to venue, you don't know the pain that I'm discussing right now, but it's a deep pain. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a deep pain. I can only imagine. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and thinking back on it, it's like there's the what could we have done to prevent it ever happening, right? Which is the discussion that you're talking about. And then there's the in the moment of the minute that somebody said venue, if you just had somebody who said, hey, wait, what's the difference between a studio and a venue? Right. And then just, you know, hash it out right then. 
then maybe you'd figure out that they were the same thing. Maybe you'd figure out that studio was too limiting and that you actually needed to make a level above studio that entailed venue, which maybe a venue is a collection of studios. You know, those kinds of definitions are, are exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, we, we actually had a moment like that today here on a whiteboard at Signal Bullock, which is the army school that I'm at. And we had, uh, we were trying to assign roles and responsibilities for teams and, uh, somebody had a column up on the whiteboard that said uh, NTT, and then somebody had a column that said WinT. And I'm looking at that, and I'm like, you know, trying to remember back to whatever PowerPoint slide that was that was discussing these things. And I'm like, wait a minute, aren't these the exact same thing? And we have two different teams for it? And so I asked somebody, and like nobody wanted to mention it before. They were just like, oh, well, that seems oddly similar. And then so I, I asked it to somebody, and then somebody else went up and asked somebody else. And then I'm watching as somebody goes up and erases the one column and puts the other two people from that column in the first column. <laughs> hey, look at you. You're an information architect. Oh, that's, ex- that's exactly what I'm talking about. And a lot of times when I am the one that does ask the question, I am surprised by the response I get from other people because it's usually not like, oh, I didn't see that. It's more generally people like, giggling or saying like, yeah, well, that's kind of the same thing. But we don't talk about it or, oh, yeah, so-and-so. <laughs> when they used to work here they called it this and then they hired this person so that's why it's called this but only in meetings with this person and you know you get all this history and baggage along with with the language which you know it's it's just very human of us that's how we tend to operate so i think if you can be the one to ask the question you can make a lot of difference absolutely well abby this has been an excellent conversation thank you so much again for coming on tell us where can we keep up with you online i have a blog abbythia.com Okay, I will put that in the show notes. And do you have a Twitter or anything? Uh, Yeah, at Abby the IA. Okay, excellent. Thank you again so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Josh. This is great. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to TalkingCode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.